welcome to the ATS RCMB podcast. With us today is Dr. Stephen Wong. Dr. Wong is an assistant professor of medicine in the section of pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of Michigan Medical School. Dr. Wong's laboratory studies epigenetics in the context of pulmonary fibrosis. Today, he will talk to us about the field of epigenetics, give us a little bit of background, and tell us how epigenetics relate to lung diseases. So, Stephen, uh, tell me a little bit about epigenetics. Um, yeah, so epigenetics is a you know, pretty um, cool and emerging field of uh, kind of studying how genes um, interact and uh, uh, get translated and affect uh, cellular phenotype. Um, uh, you know, the actual definition of epigenetics is kind of interesting thing, interesting because I think if you really ask uh, 100 epi- people that study epigenetics, you might actually get 100 different answers. Um, but I think from a, kind of the most basic definition is just basically the study of how genes get um, uh, uh, transcribed and expressed um, uh, to affect the cell's phenotype um, and that these mechanisms have um, are heritable and they, they can be passed when cells divide or even if uh, an organism, uh, you know, reproduces, these uh, regulatory controls can potentially be inherited. Um, I think maybe the reason why the uh, definition gets um, uh, pretty complicated or why you might get a lot of different uh, answers on, you know, the definition is that uh, the definition's kind of evolved over time. Um, uh, uh, you could really trace back... Um, I mean, people always kind of quote, um, you know, Waddington, uh, who was kind of the guy that uh, uh, created the term epigenetics. That was back in the 1940s. He was a evolutionary biologist back then and a developmental biologist. And he was just using that term to kind of describe how cells divide and um, differentiate and develop. And in that process, it has you know, many genes, but certain genes get turned on or off, and that kind of dictates uh, the identity of the cell. Um, uh, Back then, they didn't even know the structure of genes. They didn't even know DNA existed. Um, Obviously, since then, we've known DNA as the code, but uh, really how genes get turned on or off have been kind of an interest uh, for, for, you know, decades. Um, I think a, a big you know, advancement in understanding. Um, I could really say back, you know, maybe uh, several decades ago when people just recognized that transcription factors um, themselves are really uh, keys to turning genes on or off, They're kind of the master regulators. They, uh, uh, you know, we, we all kind of learn it back in high school biology that, you know, you have these transcription factors that bind to certain parts of the gene and they turn it on or off. Um, I think where the field of epigenetics really kind of has taken off is um, in the recognition that although these transcription factors kind of, you know, they're made by pro- they're, they're proteins, and then they kind of float around, they have to come back into the nucleus and then bind to certain parts of the DNA. Um, there's a recognition that within the DNA and chromatin, there are areas that act adjacent to the gene that actually regulate that gene transcription. Um, uh, so that's the recognition that, well, DNA could be modified by 
uh, methylation. So DNA can be methylated, and that DNA methylation can affect the uh, gene, whether it gets on or off. Um, uh, people also recognize that uh, the histones that the DNA is wound around um, are not inert. Um, they have can undergo modifications themselves, and that can uh, profoundly affect whether um, uh, genes or chromatin are uh, open or closed. And so the truth is that you know, transcription factors and DNA methylation and histone modifications probably all work in concert to affect gene regulation. Um, and uh, 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 a lot of the emphasis in epigenetics is really kind of studying the DNA methylation and the histone modifications. Um, uh, people also now also recognize and expand the definition to say that uh, a lot of non-coding RNAs also play a major role in regulating gene expression, and these non-coding RNAs um, can affect both the uh, transcript level, but also can also regulate and dictate other aspects of DNA methylation too. So, um, uh, probably, you know, on a more encompassing aspect, epigenetics really encompasses all of these aspects, and really is to study how all of these interact. Um, that's kind of a much longer answer, which is probably why you can understand like that definition gets um, debated a lot between a lot of different scientists. And, and so I know you're very interested in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF. And, and so how do these uh, changes in the DNA that are not, you know, base pair changes, but changes that they are saying like histone modifications or methylations or these non-coding RNAs, um, how do you think these, these changes are, are involved in the pathogenesis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis? So... Well, so one of the uh, attractiveness of just the um, aspect of epigenetics um, is that uh, uh, these modifications can have some stability. So you can add methyl, you can have some DNA methylation occurring, um, and that may be stable. And again, by definition of the heritable nature, these methylation changes might actually can be potentially. Um, inherited and passed on to daughter cells during cell division. And there are actually enzymes that are involved in DNA methylation can kind of recognize this process and uh, make sure that this heritable process occurs. Um, uh, so there's some aspects of stability, but there's also aspects that um, people recognize that the environment regulates uh, and can affect a lot of these epigenetic changes too. So things like diet, um, stressors in the environment, local mediators, they can all affect um, uh, the patterns of DNA methylation and histone modifications that can occur. So there's a lot of actually interest in people who study kind of environmental impact on health and disease um, in using epigenetics as a maybe a potential uh, mechanism to kind of understand how these environmental impacts affect disease. So when it comes down to the lung, I mean, I think the lungs are really a, a prime organ to really look at this. The lungs, I mean, we we learn as pulmonologists, you know, in medical school, um, you know, the surface area of the lung is a, the, the size of a tennis court. And if it's being exposed to um, things in the air or to mediators or other aspects of the environment, you could see that it can be really a um, kind of a playing field for, uh, epigenetic changes to occur. Um, so 
maybe not surprising, people have observed epigenetic changes to occur in um, uh, diseases like lung cancer, um, uh, but even like asthma uh, and COPD. Um, uh, historically, there have been less uh, 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 studies that have examined this context in IPF, but I would say probably in the past five or even ten years, uh, there's been more data that really has shown that these epigenetic changes play an important role in IPF, too. Yeah, I mean, we don't know what causes IPF, but um, if there is some aspect of environmental or uh, injury factors that, uh, you know, contribute to injury, they can cause um, potentially epigenetic changes. And people have found them in both kind of uh, when they've looked at whole lung from IPF patients, they've seen pretty broad-scale epigenetic changes in both DNA methylation and histone modifications. So, so the lung is a really good organ to study epigenetic changes and that perhaps through some environmental exposure, uh, epigenetic changes can predispose individuals to disease? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, the kind of potential stable nature of these changes um, has also kind of spurred a you know, a, a big interest in um, uh, this mechanism as a possible explanation for um, explaining how um, uh, uh, potentially early life exposures can contribute to later onset disease. Um, we know that uh, there's a lot of epidemiologic literature suggesting that, you know, kind of early um, life exposures uh, even at the prenatal development stage, uh, can lead to development of COPD or asthma much later in life. And uh, uh, there's, you know, really accumulating evidence that um, uh, there may be DNA methylation changes that are occurring uh, during these kind of vulnerable periods of prenatal development that um, uh, at the onset, they, when, when a baby's born, they, you know, look... The organs seem to function just normally, but um, they may have acquired these changes that might predispose them to developing uh, asthma or even COPD years later or decades later. So tell me a little bit about the work that you have done and uh, uh, some of the publications that you have contributed to. Um, so we've been studying IPF and pulmonary fibrosis for a long time, and um, uh, actually, I'll, I'll tell you how we actually got involved in it from my initial work looking at um, prostaglandin uh, research. Um, so it's a little bit of a circuitous route, but we actually um, looked at fibroblasts um, from IPF patients, um, and we know that these cells are, uh, you know, major effector cells. They contribute to a lot of the fibrosis. And uh, we found that, um, you know, so we first studied their behavior and response to prostaglandin E2. Uh, so PGE2 is a lipid that um, uh, actually inhibits a lot of fibroblast functions, and we thought it would be a good potential antifibrotic mediator. Um, patients with IPF make less PGE2 um, uh, in the lungs, uh, but we observed that uh, fibroblasts from patients with IPF um, are more resistant to PG2, and they don't respond to the antifibrotic actions and uh, signals. 
so that was kind of our first foray, you know, many years ago. And uh, when we wanted to figure out why that was, we were looking at um, a lot of the signaling mechanisms, and we found that a lot of the uh, the receptor and other aspects of the signaling were uh, altered and deranged in IPF uh, fibroblasts. Um, so from there, that's when we started looking at whether, uh, in particular, the receptor for PG2 might be epigenetically silenced or uh, suppressed. Um, and we found that. We, we looked at DNA methylation and saw that there were pretty large-scale methylation changes um, uh, within that, uh, that gene. Uh, since then, you know, we've really extended it to looking at uh, uh, the whole genome and looking to see if there are methylation changes uh, throughout the genome in fibroblasts. As I alluded to earlier, they, um, other investigators have uh, looked at epigenetic changes uh, and DNA methylation changes in um, lungs and lung tissue of patients with IPF. Um, uh, but we wanted to kind of just focus specifically on these cells. We knew that when we grew them on a dish or on a culture medium, um, you know, they're out of the microenvironment of the IPF lung. And I would have thought, well, if you took a fibroblast from an IPF patient but grew them out, um, their behavior should still be similar to, you know, any other fibroblasts um, now that they're out of that IPF lung. Uh, but they're not. They actually retain uh, a lot of their kind of pro-fibrotic features, and um, that's where we kind of thought, well, maybe there's some epigenetic changes related to that. So we, we looked and we we saw a lot of, uh, different genes and a lot of different um, uh, groupings of genes that are uh, affected by DNA methylation and histone modifications. And, um, and since then, we've kind of followed up on some of these. Some of these are novel genes that we had never previously considered and are really kind of a focus that we've been studying a lot of. Um, uh, That's kind of some of our focus. Um, other aspects of our focus are really trying to still also understand what um, regulates DNA methylation, and uh, we've spent a lot of work looking at time uh, looking at uh, uh, how these DNA methyltransferases, which are kind of the enzymes that regulate DNA methylation, how they get regulated and uh, the signals that regulate them. Uh, uh, so these are some of the projects that we've done in the lab as well, uh, that we've done in the lab. Fantastic. You know, it sounds like you've been very successful. Uh, there's a lot of junior uh, uh, people who listen to this podcast. I uh, just wanted to know if you had any advice for them, uh, um, you know, in their career. It's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think uh, uh, so I'll, I'll kind of point to a, a few, I'll say a few comments about that. Um I mean, first off, you know, I uh, 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 found that, um, you know, my experience in fellowship uh, really was kind of instrumental in um, uh, in my research career. Um, uh, I guess I would say I'm kind of a late bloomer in that, you know, I didn't have a Ph.D. background per se, and uh, I uh, did some, you know, research work and bench work kind of in undergrad and med school, but I wasn't quite sure that I would necessarily, that this would necessarily be a career for me. But when I um, applied for fellowship, I really wanted to keep uh, an open mind. Um, and I think um, one of the aspects of fellowship experience is that you really get a more dedicated period of time 
to um, do a research project that you can really own, um, which was a little bit different than, you know, what you might think of when you have a experience during undergrad. Sometimes during those periods, you're really working on other people's projects or kind of contributing, you know, a little piece. Um, uh, so, you know, that kind of really opened my eyes to kind of uh, really the excitement of research and kind of you're asking unknown questions. Um, I think the uh, uh, identification of um, the right mentor is probably maybe more, one of the most important aspects. Um, I've been really fortunate to have um, uh, really a lot of great mentors. I, you know, even during my residency, even I, I did a few research projects, um, but I also had uh, mentors that I looked up to and kind of um, helped me steer my helped steer me into. Uh, going into pulmonary to begin with, and to this day I still um, uh, uh, you know see him at ATS every year, and uh, you know really enjoy uh, you know meeting with him every year. Um, uh, during my fellowship, I uh, have you know I worked with a mentor that um, even to this day I still consider him as my mentor because I've stayed on in the same institution. I've uh, my office is pretty close to him, and um, I still chat with him on a regular basis. Even with my science kind of, uh, you know, differentiating from his quite a bit, um, and but we still kind of talk on a regular basis, and I find, like, um, you, you could always kind of benefit from a mentor, really, at almost any stage. Even a mid, I think even a mid-career develop, mid-career, um, you know, physician scientist, Sometimes they're looking to kind of change their science a little bit and finding uh, colleagues and collaborators and people um, to talk about these things with. Uh, they're all very useful. Um, so uh, uh, I, I would say, you know, a few things that, you know, recommendations I would say is just keep an open mind. You know, I didn't go in with a, a huge thought that I was going to be a physician scientist, but it really caught, I really caught that bug, and I really think that research um, is exciting, you know, and uh, I wouldn't have, you know, gone into it or thought about thought that way if, you know, I uh, closed the door off too early. Um, uh, secondly, you know, obviously look for mentors and um, uh, value, you know, your mentorship. Um, uh Thirdly, you know, there's a degree of persistence that you kind of have to have. Um, I think research, you know, if you ask any scientist, they'll all kind of, you know, admit that there's a lot of, uh, you fail more often than you succeed. Um, but when you do succeed, they can be very, it can be very rewarding. Uh, but those failures all come with, with, with life and, and with any scientist and um, uh, sometimes... Uh, a little persistence uh, through those hard times is just part of part of the profession, and um, it's okay, you know. That's fantastic advice, Dr. Wong. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Well, thank you. Um, uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on the ATS RCME podcast. Tune in next time for more cutting edge research from the ATS RCMB.